0: We could do one more read of your name. Oh. I mean, just to have more than one option. That's yeah. true. I mean, you did great.
1: Um, <laughs> was it too much?
0: <laughs> this is Crosscut Reports. I'm Sarah Bernard.
2: And I'm Maliha Sayed.
0: And Maliha, as you know, if you've listened to the last couple of episodes, is our new co-host. She's going to be in this podcast feed all the time now. So today, we're chatting together about Maliha's journey from writer to podcaster and about some other exciting news here at Cascade Public Media. The launch of Season 8 of Mossback's Northwest, our really fun and fascinating video series on Pacific Northwest history. Plus, the launch of Season 4 of the Mossback Podcast, a companion to the series. We'll share part of the first episode right here in just a bit. Stay tuned. how you've mostly worked as a writer until recently. So what draws you to audio storytelling?
2: I feel like I consume a lot of my news that way. And when I'm filling up my day, like no matter what I'm doing, if I'm home and I'm doing dishes or I'm walking to the bathroom or Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm just like waking up, I need some audio or I need some noise. And I think in the past few years, especially with the pandemic, less socializing. I've just had podcasts on constantly. Uh So, same. Right. Like, (laughs) I just feel like that is all that's on in my head and in my headphones. So, I would say that's one way that, like, I'm drawn to audio storytelling is just like how I consume it. And then just learning how to produce a story. I think I feel like my creative muscles are getting flexed a little bit more with audio storytelling than writing just because I'd been writing for years. So it's really fun to delve into a new medium.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Speaking of which, I mean, what do you feel like is the biggest difference so far between being a writer, being a journalist who writes stories versus one who produces audio stories?
2: Yeah, I feel like I am just noticing how much more intentional I have to be in conversation, which I want to be already, but it's very different writing. If I'm listening back to the recording, I can be embarrassed by how I sound, but it doesn't really matter because no one else is going to hear that. But with audio storytelling and with podcast, I'm very conscious of just how the conversation is going. It's kind of forced me to be more intentional about like the flow of the conversation and just how, yeah, like how natural the back and forth sounds. For sure. And that is hard. I mean, I, I've done
0: other kinds of audio storytelling with that that are not based on a single interview. Crosscut Reports, most of this year, has been that. It's different. It's hard to sort of be in charge of a conversation in that way.
2: I think I also just, I've realized how much a small edit makes a huge difference. Like, in writing, you can just go in, erase, change a word,
1: mm-hmm. quickly fact
2: check, and mm-hmm. modify a sentence. But with recording, like, the last few times I've had to come back to the studio, re-record the intro, just make it sound better, like— Little things like that that I don't think I took into account with writing, or I didn't have to worry about as much with writing. Yeah, I've definitely felt that
0: where it's like this would have taken 15 seconds in in writing, but it's really taking me like 45 minutes, you know? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. no,
2: I, I, the last two episodes, which which were my first two episodes here um, for reports, the first one, it it was like actually an accuracy thing. So I had to go re record the intro. But the second time, I checked in with our boss, Sarah Menzies, and I was like, can you just let me know what you think of this intro? Because I feel like I sound really low energy. You know, it was like 9 a.m. It was a busy day. I think I was just trying to knock out the intro and outro. (laughs) Then I listened back, and yeah, my voice sounded completely different than what I thought when I was saying it. And and, and as a listener, you can pick that up so quickly, but just in real time, I had no clue. So I did re-record it. (laughs) I've been there. Funny
0: story on my end is that for the first episode of the third season of This Changes Everything, which is another podcast that I produced for uh, Cascade Public Media, was I was actually um, recording that narration while sick with COVID. Oh, I remember that. <laughs> and um, I was lucky enough that my case was mild and I, I was able to work from home, but I I could just tell there was just a, a real ceiling on the energy <laughs> levels <laughs> on that read. I just couldn't get, I couldn't get more, more into it. But anyways, yeah. so for anybody who listened to that uh, and felt like, hmm, she seems a little sleepy, that's why. There's some behind the scenes. There's some intel.
2: <laughs> no, I mean, that's another thing. Working from home and writing is very different. You're not performing as much. So
0: you've listened to a lot of podcasts you are saying, like, for the past few years, you know, kind of constantly just like me. What podcasts do you listen to or recommend?
2: I feel like I group them all into different categories. Like, I like my daily feeds. I like um, Up First from NPR. I like Today Explained from Vox. I Mm -hmm. think they have a fun storytelling format, just how they kind of keep it casual but talk about really broad, sweeping topics. So I group that into one. And then I would say there's kind of the short explainers, like Unexplainable from Vox, Shortwave. And then... I also really like the Deeper Dive podcasts. I drove down from Vermont to D.C. a few years ago, and I just I remember that entire drive, like playing back to back episodes of You're Wrong About, the show with Sarah Marshall and Michael Hobbs. And they uh, Michael Hobbs is no longer with the show, but they basically talk about, um, you know, what we got wrong in history. And so I like those. I like Throughline. And then I think what's on repeat all the time are just banter podcasts, like pop culture, banter. I like Keep It from Crooked Media. I like Binge-topia, giving a little plug to my Binge-topia podcast. Um, Yeah, I know some of these. I I like just, uh, these are just good background podcasts, like things that I don't have to think too hard about, but I'm still getting laughs Mm -hmm. again. At a time during COVID when I was not, socializing as much as I needed to. I think they were my friends. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) They were carrying me through. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I've been there for sure. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Malija. We are super excited that you are part of the team. I'm
2: happy to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Speaking of excited, we're also excited to announce that Mossback is back. Okay, so, Knut, first things first. What is a mossback?
1: Mossback is a word that's had many different meanings at different times and different places. But in the Pacific Northwest... In the late 19th century, it was a term of derision that newcomers had for old-time settlers.
0: Mossback's Northwest, a video series from Crosscut and KCTS-9 about Pacific Northwest history.
1: In the mid-19th century, America was experiencing an oyster mania.
0: Everything from oysters and Arctic explorers to Wyatt Earp and Paul Bunyan.
1: Few figures loom as large in Northwest lore as Paul Bunyan and his big blue ox named Babe
0: and hosted by our resident historian, Knut Berger, it's back for season eight. And Mossback, its companion podcast, which we launched back in January 2022, will drop the first episode of its fourth season on Friday, October 6th.
1: I think of it as like deep moss. That's
0: right. Uh, (laughs) I co-hosted the first couple of seasons of Mossback, and since then, Knut's been chatting each week with longtime Mossback video producer, Stephen Haig.
1: Although if you're having to use bear spray, your encounter is too close. Your encounter is too close. <laughs> right.
0: Coming up this season, stories about ancient volcanic eruptions, grizzly bears, the history of Seattle's pea patches.
3: I bet if you ask anybody on the street what the P in pea patch means, they would have no idea. Right?
0: And much more. But first, I want to share a preview of the first episode of this season of Mossback. It's all about the Magellans of the sky. The group of pilots who led the first ever successful round-the-world flight back in 1924. It started and ended in Seattle. Have a listen.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS-9 and Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knut Berger. And today, we're revisiting the 1920s to talk about the Magellans of the sky, the crew of aviators that pulled off the first around-the-world flight starting and ending in Seattle. If you haven't already seen the video, you can find it on the show notes or on crosscut.com. I think it'll make this conversation all the more interesting. But for now, prepare for takeoff. So, Knut, what spurred you on the journey for this particular episode uh, of Mossbacks Northwest?
1: I actually got an email from a friend who is a member of the Friends of Magnuson Park, and this was um, last year, so 2022. And she mentioned that there was going to be a celebration of this around-the-world flight, and it was hundred—the 100th anniversary was going to be coming up in. Uh, 2024. And I thought, you know, I've heard about that flight. I've heard about, you know, that this group of airmen took off from Seattle and went around the world, but I didn't know a whole lot about it. And I got interested and just started researching it and decided to make it part of season eight. And uh, actually the hundredth anniversary is starting in the fall, this fall of 2023. So, It seemed timely. Magnuson Park is relevant because it used to be Sandpoint Naval Air Station. That's right. So it was an airfield back in the 1920s. It became a naval air station. Uh, It was very active in World War II and afterwards. And then eventually the city of Seattle was able to get it from the military, turn it into Magnuson Park. And that's where these aviators took off from. Exactly. That was the beginning and ending point of the very first around-the-world Flight. Why doesn't
3: anybody know about this? It seems to be kind of forgotten in Seattle history, unlike the many other aviation feats that that we know of.
1: Well, first of all, if you go back and look at what the press coverage was like in 1924, it was a huge deal, both nationally and locally. I mean, front page stories, detailed coverage. um, You know, there was tremendous interest in it. And, um, you know, tens of thousands of people turned out to see these flyers off and return. So it was a really big deal. And it was a big deal nationally because it was organized by the U.S. military, basically the army. These pilots on this flight were army flyers. And um, so it wasn't the kind of romantic solo adventure of somebody like uh, Charles Lindbergh, we did the first solo flight across the Atlantic in 1927. This is three years before that. This was basically an organized kind of military activity to make a statement about the power and logistical power of the U.S. military and the nation.
3: Was that the stated purpose
1: or was that sort of the, the um, something that, the country wanted to project. Well, I think I think people in power wanted to project that. I mean, you're thinking about this is right after essentially right after the end of World War I, and out of that, the United States has taken a kind of new position as a global power. People wanted to be able to fly around the world in these newfangled airplanes. And many people were trying, some of them were solo you know, attempts and whatnot. There wasn't a plane that could take you around nonstop. It it basically was a vestige of the age of exploration, that this was something that the nation could undertake and show off its, its muscle, show off its new reach, show off its uh, relations with foreign country and use it as kind of a PR, international PR effort. And at the same time, we could beat all the other countries that were trying to do the same thing. So, yes, I think it was a very patriotic, very uh, nationalistic kind of uh, enterprise, but one that required uh, a certain amount of global cooperation. A projection of global power, of global reach. Right. And, uh, you know, the the term Magellans of the sky was a term – that was applied to them at the time. That was the way they were referred to in press accounts. And, of course, Magellan was the first known European explorer to take an expedition of ships and circle the globe. And so this was the era of new technology. We could go around the world in boats, but now we could do it in the air.
3: In this area of the country, we love to celebrate aviation feats that are Boeing-centric, and there have been many of them, but this was not.
1: Right. This was Douglas-centric, meaning that the aircraft that was used uh, were planes built specifically for this purpose by uh, Douglas Aircraft in California. And they had supplied the Navy with some torpedo bombers. And so they adapted that model for this effort. Um, I sort of assumed that Boeing played a major role in it. And they did play a role, which is interesting. The Boeing uh, engineers and mechanics helped get the planes ready once they were in Seattle for the flight. And uh, they they sort of provided ground crew (laughs) for the effort.
3: So these were – I think of biplanes, and these were biplanes, of course. Yes. I think of biplanes as sort of the gnats of the sky now, you know, underpowered and. But these were workhorses. These were very sophisticated planes. Big, big engine. Big V twelve engines,
1: right? Yes. And built of. Well, they were built out of uh, metal, aluminum, but also they were they were transitional aircraft. to do this journey, they had to be very durable and also very light. So the biplane wings were still made out of Sitka spruce and covered with cotton, treated cotton. So they they had, you know, fabric, they had wood. The propellers were wooden propellers. You know, they had, very, had to have very many and, and fairly good-sized gas tanks to be able to um, get the planes going from one point to another. And that's something that's important to realize is that these planes were not gonna fly more than four to six hours at a time. So they were gonna be hopping around the world, landing either on water or on land, and at every point, they were going to need refueling. They were going to need maintenance. They, they were going to need to kind of refurbish and repair. And they had to hopscotch basically you know, the entire way around the globe. And they needed to find a route that would be conducive to that. So they started in Seattle, I guess, even though they were built in California. They started yeah. in
3: Seattle because they were going to have to cross the Pacific, I would guess, via the the Alaska Aleutian sort of Bering Sea route.
1: Yes. Yes, they were going to be crossing the North Pacific. That would get them across more quickly. There was more ground underneath them for more of the way. Um, and Seattle was an aviation hub because of Boeing and and tremendous interest here in, in early aviation. Um, it was sort of the last place in the U.S. anyway where they could – um, stage the journey. So they had help from Boeing, they had an airfield, um, and um, they were going to, you know, fly north of British Columbia, Alaska, make the turn, head over to <laughs> Siberia and down to Asia. Which sort of begs a question about the geopolitics of the time. Uh,
3: as I recall, we didn't have great relationship with the Soviet Union at that time, 1924, after the war, after the revolution. Presumably, they would have to have landed in the Soviet
1: Union someplace. W- were there any countries that- And they did. Oh, <laughs> But um, they didn't have permission to. Um, and, But this was one of the great part of the logistical effort was negotiating with these other countries around the world permission to land. And pos- permission to stage U.S. Navy ships, refueling vessels, um, uh, military units and whatnot, so that when they landed, they had help. They had um, personnel that could, you know, sort of like a, you know, a NASCAR race, right? (laughs) Where you have a pit crew. Yeah, exactly. And they had, I think, mobile oil. Uh, participated in making sure that, you know, fuel was available, that kind of thing. So it was a sort of massive, mostly public, but somewhat private effort. And the diplomatic effort was part of that. So there were four planes, each named after a city representing sort of the four corners of America. So there was the Boston, Chicago, Seattle, and the New Orleans. So these four planes, eight pilots... Take off from Seattle,
3: from what we know now as Magnuson Park, and they took off from water.
1: They did, yeah. They had the pontoons installed. It took them a couple of days to get the right conditions and everything balanced, uh, and then uh, yeah, they rolled them in into Lake Washington and they took off. And it was a nice day. The weather was good. They could see Mount Rainier as they were flying north. I think they knew better than anyone how risky it was. I mean, they were sending four planes because I don't think anybody expected them all to make it back. The hope was that one would make it back at least. And, um, yeah, there was a mechanic named Leslie Arnold who wrote in his diary that only one plane would make it all the way around.
0: That's it for today's preview, but there's much more to that episode and, of course, to the whole series. Subscribe to Mossback wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Reports. This episode was produced by me, Sarah Bernard, and Malija Sayed. The story editor and executive producer was Sarah Menzies. The preview you heard from the Mossback podcast was produced by Seth Halloran. Subscribe to Mossback and stay tuned for new episodes every Friday, starting October 6th, Plus, Mossback's Northwest, the video series, will premiere on KCTS 9 at 8.50 p.m. on October 5th and on Crosscut.com on October 6th. You can subscribe to Crosscut Reports wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Also, if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the video docuseries we stream every week, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to Crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS-9. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit Crosscut.com. Crosscut Reports is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.